Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. 1. Deputy Todd Moore's voice came through the radio. Dispatch, I think I've got eyes on the blue Chevy. It's behind the old Vesta plant. He read off the license plate and it came back to Percy Charles with an address on Pinehurst Boulevard. Copy, the dispatcher replied. Can you tell if he's still around? Sergeant Hillard asked over the radio. Moore pulled up alongside the blue Chevy Cruze and replied, Car's empty, but it looks like somebody cut the chain on the back door of the plant. I see a pair of bolt cutters up there. I think he took her inside, Sarge. 2. Fifteen minutes earlier, Linda Charles had pulled into her lover's driveway. Her husband Percy had gone to the liquor store, but she knew what that really meant. The liquor store served as such in the front, but if you stepped around an industrial fridge near the rear of the building, you would find a tall, black curtain. Pull back the curtain, and you would find a door. Open the door, and you would find a tiny dive full of fellow alcoholics hiding from their own spouses and children. A speakeasy of sorts, but without the aura noir, inimitable drinks, or interesting patronage. Linda's husband Percy thought Linda didn't know his secret. He must have taken her for an idiot who thought it was perfectly reasonable to spend two or three hours on a liquor run. He must have thought her nose was numb to the alcohol on his breath when he returned home with bottles still sealed. But Linda did know Percy's secret. So, to teach him a lesson about secrets, she created one of her own. Her secret was five years younger and roughly 50 pounds lighter than Percy. He was also unmarried and living alone, and thus available whenever Percy made a spontaneous liquor run. Linda stepped out of her car that day, 15 minutes before Deputy Moore would find a blue Chevy Cruze parked behind the Vesta plant, 13 minutes before she, herself, would be hoisted out of the trunk of that Chevy Cruze and dragged through one of the slaughterhouse's crusty old doors. She looked up and saw her lover waiting in the window. He gave her a smile, and she returned it with the last genuine smile she would ever give anyone. Tires screeched behind her. Neglected brakes screamed. A door slammed. Footsteps she would have recognized on the moon approached her from behind. Her lover's smile faltered. Her husband's hands wrapped around her face. 3. If you didn't catch that, the old Vesta plant is a former slaughterhouse. Locals call it the plant, so they don't have to think too hard about what actually went on there. It employed a good portion of the county before being shut down in the late 90s. Locals spun up some incredible rumors about why the place closed, but in reality, it had probably just lost too much business to the bigger corporate meatpacking plants. The Vesta plant is a two-story building, once a dishonestly sterile white and now depression brown. About half of its windows were covered with plywood over the years, the other half still hold the remaining panes of original glass, now cloudy with age and neglect. If you try to look inside, even with a flashlight, you can't see past the decades of grime built up inside the glass. There are doors on all four sides of the large structure, 
and all had been chained shut for decades until someone cut the chain that now hung limply from the door in front of Deputy Moore. For the first time in over 20 years, the Vesta plant had been cracked open. 4. The initial report had come from a distressed mail caller. He said he was Linda Charles's friend and claimed she had just been kidnapped. He said a man had come to his house when Linda was visiting, grabbed her out of the driveway, and shoved her into the trunk of a blue Chevy car. Do you know who took her? Becca Watts, the dispatcher who took the call, had asked. While she talked, she typed rapidly into her computer, alerting every deputy to keep their eyes out for blue Chevys. I don't know, I'd never seen this guy before, the mail caller had answered. Do you know where he might take her? Becca had asked. I'm not sure, the caller said. Do you have Linda's birth date? I don't, sorry. Address? She thought. Please don't be completely useless. Not exactly. She lives on Pinehurst Boulevard, though, I think. Got it. Becca had searched for Linda Charles's located in the state, then filtered the search by address. She found her. One Linda Charles, born September 19, 1988, with a home address, 496 Pinehurst Boulevard. Okay, I have her information, Becca had told the caller. While she collected more details from the caller, Becca had dug deeper. She had learned this man's friend, Linda, was married to someone named Percy Charles. Becca had noted how rarely, if ever, she had heard the name Percy in her work. Percy Charles, born May 14, 1987, owned a blue 2006 Chevy Cruze. Becca had put the puzzle together. An unhappy or maybe just downright unfaithful wife found a new man, and hubby found out. Becca had put out all the information she could find, including that Percy Charles had registered a rifle in his name, and had hoped someone would find the estranged couple before it was too late. 5. Deputy Moore stared at the door with the cut chain hanging uselessly from it. He listened, ready to go in at the first sound of distress, but wholly unwilling to enter the dark labyrinth of Vesta even one second sooner. Sergeant Hillard arrived a minute later. He pulled in quietly, as they were trained to do when rolling up on potentially dynamic situations. Hillard parked and joined Moore by the door. Any sign of him? No, nothing at all, Moore said. He watched Hillard take the building in. He wondered if his sergeant was experiencing the same misgivings he was. Well, I'll tell you what, partner. We ain't going in there yet. Not like this. Let's try getting in touch with this guy first. You searched the car yet? Moore had not. He had been too focused on listening for their suspect and victim in the Vesta plant. They went back to the blue Chevy Cruze. The driver's door was wide open and the trunk was bobbing in the breeze like a mouth silently laughing at them. We have probable cause? Moore checked. Oh hell yeah we do, partner. Besides, it's open. Hillard answered as he peered into the car. Moore looked into the back seat and found something that needed immediate attention. Hey Sarge, he said. I've got empty boxes of 223 rounds in the back seat. Oh, great. Into the radio, Hillard said. We've got reason to believe this suspect is armed. Approach the building with caution. Keep an eye on the windows. Moore and Hillard returned to the door, safely out of sight from Vesta's vantage points. Hillard tried calling Percy Charles's cell phone, hoping to reason with the man before anyone got hurt, and was astonished when Percy actually picked up. Hey, you one of the cops outside? Percy asked. He sounded drunk. 
Yes, sir, this is Sergeant Hillard with the Glen County Sheriff's Department. Is this Percy Charles? Yes, sir, and don't you try any tricks on me, you hear? I got my wife, my wife, in here and we hidden so you can't find us, and I got a rifle pointed right at the door so you don't try anything, you hear? I hear you, Percy, I do. I was hoping maybe we could talk through this, Hillard said, trying to hide the doubt in his voice. He knew from experience that a desperate suspect, especially an inebriated one, would probably not give himself over willingly. Percy had gotten himself into this situation because he was convinced it was the only way to take back any power in his life. But Hillard had to try. All right, Percy said. So here's what I want. I want you and anyone else out there to go away. I want to talk to my wife alone. I just want her to listen to what I have to say. Percy, is your wife in there with you now? Can I get some confirmation that she's okay? There was a rush of muffled noises on the other end of the line, then a woman crying. Don't want to be here. Please help me. Please get me out of... The muffled noises cut her off. Then Hillard heard Percy's heavy breathing on the other end again. There you go. She's still alive and she'll stay that way as long as everybody listens to me. You hear? I hear, Percy. I hear. Hillard paused to calculate his next move, but never got a chance. A horrid shrieking sound like metal against metal pierced his ear through the phone. He had to hold it away from his head. The noise was so loud he could only faintly hear both Percy and Linda Charles screaming and shouting beneath it. What the hell is that? Deputy Moore asked. He was looking up at the building, and Sergeant Hillard realized he could hear the shrieking noise without the phone. It was reverberating throughout the whole plant. Mr. Charles, are you there? Hillard shouted into the phone. Nothing changed. Percy, are you? The shrieking went silent, and so did the screams. Moore and Hillard gave each other inquisitive looks, which turned to stone-cold resolve as footsteps ran toward them from behind the door. Come out with your hands up, Moore screamed. He and Hillard raised their guns, pointing them at the door. Please, you gotta help, Percy Charles screamed from the other side. It took her. It took her all the way in. Show us your hands, Moore screamed. He pulled the door open just a crack and stood back. Percy's empty hands slid through the crack in the door. Keep them there, Moore shouted. He looked to Hillard, who nodded to confirm he had Moore covered, then holstered his gun and went to the door. He approached Percy from his blind side and tried to grab his hands, but Percy retracted them. Moore opened the door and leveled his gun at the man, ordering him to step out. Percy obeyed this order but stayed out of reach. He had deep gashes across one of his cheeks and forehead. They were bleeding profusely, but Percy didn't even seem to notice. You gotta save her, man. It took her all the way in, he shouted. We can talk once you're in cuffs. Now get on your knees and keep your hands up. No, man, I'm sorry. I can't let you cuff me until she's safe, Percy replied. He recoiled behind the door. Moore stepped forward and Percy disappeared into the shadows. Moore went in. He stopped dead inside the door and listened. He could hear Percy's footsteps echoing down the hall, but couldn't see him. Moore clicked on the flashlight under the barrel of his own gun and lit up the rest of the hallway. One door about halfway down was open, as well as one at the very end. Sergeant Hillard entered behind him and took one short look at the coverless hallway before ducking back out. He'll pick us off one at a time, Hillard said. We're not going down there without gear. He could pop out of anywhere. They heard a piercing scream echo from somewhere deep in the belly of the building, somewhere beyond that open door at the end of the hallway. I'm coming, Linda, a hysterical male voice shouted. Percy suddenly popped out of the other open door holding his gun. Moore was only a hair's breadth away from blowing the man's head off, but fortunately, 
he realized Percy was running away before his finger found the trigger. Hey, stop, Moore shouted, but Percy ignored him and ran through the door at the end. Hillard grunted. He's setting us up. Let's fall back. Didn't you hear her scream? Moore asked. Look, I'm sure she's scared stiff, but we can't chase an armed man through a maze in the dark, Hillard answered. She sounded hurt. Todd, I'm ordering you out of there, Hillard said. Moore heard Percy's echoing footsteps strike something metal that sounded like stairs. Moore, putting his concern for the screaming woman above his own safety, chose to trust the drunken kidnapper. I'll stay in touch, Moore said with a nod to the radio mic on his shoulder. Hillard shouted after him, but his stern voice did nothing to keep Deputy Moore in place. Gun and light out in front of him, Moore chased after Percy Charles. Hillard did not follow. The door at the end of the hall led Moore into a large, empty space. A broken-down conveyor belt sat forgotten on one side. A darkly stained trench cut the room in half. It was bridged every ten feet by metal grates where Moore had imagined someone would have stood and cut throats for minimum wage before the place was shut down. The tile walls all around the room were still stained with decades-old blood. Directly across from where Moore had entered, a small, metal handrail emerged from the ground. He used one of the metal grates to cross. It creaked and groaned under his weight, and Moore felt his stomach turn at the thought of falling into that trench, that dried-up, bloody riverbed. At the top of the stairs, Moore shone his flashlight down and whispered Percy's name. His own voice came back to him a dozen times, but no answer from below. He cursed under his breath and took his first step down the rusty staircase. He hated this part more than anything so far. The further he descended, the more exposed his lower half became. The back and sides of the staircase were wide open. If Percy Charles had wanted to lay a trap, this was the place to do it. He could be crouched just out of sight with that rifle, and Moore wouldn't know it until a two-two-three round exploded his knee. But no shots came ripping out of the dark. Moore climbed all the way down and stood in a large space made tight by abandoned equipment, the largest of which were three basins positioned under the drains in the floor. The sound of heavy breathing filled the air as it reverberated around the tiled walls. Another sound, moaning, was there too, although much fainter. Moore turned off his radio to make sure it didn't surprise him or anyone else with any unexpected sounds. Deputy, a voice whispered off to Moore's right side. He swung his light in that direction and found Percy Charles crouched behind a long table. Blood dripped from the cuts on his cheek and forehead. He was clutching his rifle, which was covered in bloody handprints. But Moore did not feel threatened. The man looked scared. Terrified, really. Looking into Percy's eyes, Moore knew they were no longer deputy and suspect. They were in this together. Whatever this was. As Moore crouched behind the machine across from him, Percy held a finger to his lips. He pointed at something in the dark at the other end of the room. Moore slowly turned his light in that direction and saw an open door. Through it, he could see movement. Someone tall was standing just out of sight and moving quickly. Linda, Moore whispered. Percy's eyes widened and he held that finger up to his lips again as he shook his head no. Moore remained crouched but started creeping toward the door, keeping his light trained there. As he closed in, he could hear a distinctly feminine voice muttering unintelligibly. Something wet thumped in the room. 
Percy had fallen in beside Moore and they reached the door together. And together, they saw who was inside. Six. Sergeant Hillard sat in his car at the very back of the Vesta lot. He had just gotten off the phone with the state patrol. Their hostage negotiator was six counties over. They had offered to chopper him in, but Hillard thought it would be a waste of everyone's time. He already had a deputy inside, a deputy who had lied to him about keeping in touch via the radio, albeit. He had reached out to Moore at least ten times without a single response. Ordinarily, a lieutenant or even the sheriff himself would have been calling the shots at this point, but the sheriff was on vacation in Florida and the lieutenant was out with the flu. And so this mess, this cluster you-know-what, had fallen into the calloused hands of Sergeant Hillard. More units had arrived, including two ambulances from nearby hospitals. They were parked off to the side like vultures waiting to swoop in and claim the bloodied victims of whatever horror unfolded at the Vesta plant that day. Hillard hoped it wouldn't come to that. He hoped, somehow, everyone would get to walk away okay. He stared at the half-open door to the backside of the Vesta plant and wondered how long it had been since those rusty old hinges had turned. His friends had all told stories about what they thought happened after the slaughterhouse was closed for good. One kid, a sophomore whose dad worked there, said there were all sorts of accidents on an almost daily basis. He said workers who got injured were paid to keep quiet. This might have been the most credible and believable account if the sophomore hadn't ended this story by telling them all his dad's arm had been eaten up by a meat grinder and spewed into a batch of ground beef. So, if you had any ground beef in September last year, you probably ate some of my dad, the kid said. No one had believed him, but they all had a hard time eating burgers for a few weeks. Another kid who claimed no connection to the Vesta plant except through workers who hung around his parents' restaurant bar said a lot of people went crazy there. He said killing dozens or hundreds of animals every day just drove folks to the brink. They would slash one last throat then start screaming and running around like they had just realized they were trapped in some enormous cage. This kid, a junior, had said, Sometimes they would drop to all fours and crawl around like animals. Some guys actually squealed like pigs after they snapped. They would have to be bound and gagged on their way to the hospital, and then no one would ever see them again. At some point during Hillard's junior year, the wildest rumor of all had started to spread. This one, author unknown, claimed that a worker had disappeared without a trace one day. Everyone just assumed he had quit without notice and went on with their business. Weeks went by without anyone thinking about this guy. One night, a manager stayed late to handle payroll. Around seven, he heard a sound out on the floor. Thinking everyone else had left for the night, the manager stepped out onto the dark floor to see who had come back and why. He looked around for a while and didn't see anything. But then he heard another sound, a sharp metal scrape, and it was close. The manager went looking for the sound again. His boot caught on something sticking up from the floor and he fell hard onto his stomach, hitting his chin on the concrete floor. As he got up, he looked back and saw one of the floor grates was sticking up at an angle. His boot had caught the protruding corner. Frustrated, he grabbed the grate to fix it. There wasn't a lot of light in the building at night, so he couldn't really see under the grate. But when the manager dropped it into place, he saw the whites of two eyes flash below him. Thinking he had just seen a ghost, the manager ran all the way out of the building and drove home, leaving his payroll problems for the morning. Not wanting to be called crazy, 
the manager kept this episode to himself until the day another worker went missing. This one had clocked in at the beginning of the day, but by lunch was nowhere to be seen. Scared, the manager ordered a full search of the building. The man's supervisor recalled sending the missing man down into the lower level to check a breaker and thought that was the last time he had seen him. So down into the bowels of the Vesta plant the search party had gone, and they did find the missing worker. They found his chewed remains. And standing over him, looking like a wild dog, was the first missing worker, the one they had all thought quit. He had been living under the building and in the walls, surviving off the blood that drained through the trenches and scraps of raw meat that fell or were left close enough for him to reach through the vents and drains. The man had supposedly escaped before anyone could catch him. Hillard thought back on these wild rumors about the Vesta plant. If even one of them were true, the events that led to the closure of the slaughterhouse were far in the past now, decades gone. He reminded himself that it was just an old building now, just a hollowed-out shell of what it had been. 7. Most of Linda Charles was laying on a metal table, a gurney more like. Her left arm, from the shoulder down, lay on the floor right in front of Percy and Deputy Moore. Towering over the gurney, looming over the rest of Linda, was a tall, spindly man dressed in a tunic made of roughly cut skins tied at the waist with what had to have been pig intestines. The skins looked like leather, only properly prepared leather doesn't rot. The man had long, wild hair that stuck together in matted clumps and an equally chaotic beard that covered most of his face. All more could make out behind it were two pale, empty eyes. The skin man didn't react to the flashlight or the men who were now watching him from the door. He was totally blind. Linda's eyes were open and she was staring directly at the door, but didn't seem to see Percy or Moore either. Moore didn't think she was really seeing anything. She had retreated to the darkest, most shadowy corners of her mind to hide. The skin man had packed her shoulder stump. With what, Moore didn't want to know. But blood continued to pool around her. She lay there, moaning and muttering nonsense. She's still alive, but barely, Moore thought. Confident he could take the skinny blind man, he rose to his feet. His knees popped when he stood. The skin man squealed like a terrorized hog and climbed on top of the gurney. He perched over Linda's body like an animal defending prey from scavengers. With one hand, he clutched a long saw that dripped red onto Linda's face, into her open eyes. Moore stood frozen again. The skin man had moved quicker than anyone he had seen before. Below him, Percy started slowly leveling his gun at the skin man's matted head. Percy lined up his gun, put one of the skin man's pale eyes in the sights, and squeezed the trigger. But it came all the way back without resistance. Percy had forgotten to cock it. There wasn't a round in the chamber yet. He looked up at Moore, who grimaced and held up three fingers. He dropped one, then two. Rather than drop the third, Moore raised his pistol, and at the same time Percy cocked his rifle. The skin man leapt at them. His initial trajectory sent him straight at Deputy Moore, but two blasts from Moore's service weapon knocked him off course. He fell, screaming gibberish, on top of Percy, before Percy could get a shot off. Moore couldn't shoot once the skin man was on top of Percy, 
Instead, with his free hand, he grabbed the skin man's hair. It felt sandy and wet between his fingers. Moore yanked the fistful of hair, pulling the flailing assailant off of Percy. Percy rolled out, brought up his gun, and started shooting. The skin man leapt back. A ricocheting round cut Moore across the cheek. He looked down and saw that Percy was shooting with his eyes closed. Moore kicked Percy's trigger hand to make him stop. This took all the time the skin man needed to sneak away. Where is he? Where is he? Percy kept shouting. He's gone. Now get up. Moore hooked an arm under Percy's shoulder and hoisted him to his feet. A sound between a moan and a sigh echoed in the other room, and both men turned to look at Linda. Percy rushed to her side. Oh, why? He sobbed. Moore grabbed a wrist and felt a faint pulse there. She needs medical attention, ASAP. Percy asked, Can you call someone down here? No, not with that madman roaming around. We'll have to carry her out. Oh, come on, we hit that guy with at least three rounds. He crawled away to die. Moore looked around the room. There was a grate on the floor, which looked like it had once been attached to the ceiling. Now there was just a square hole up there. He didn't know how the skin man would have climbed up there, especially injured, but there was nowhere else he could have gone so quietly. Maybe. Still, we can't risk it. Listen, I'll carry her. You cover us until we get upstairs. Then we'll have to switch. I don't want you holding that gun when we run into the others. Percy swallowed hard but nodded in agreement. Moore detached the flashlight under the barrel of his gun and tossed it to Percy. It won't fit your rifle, but you can hold it. Then, he turned his radio back on and called for his sergeant. Judging from the static that crackled at the end of his transmission, he assumed they didn't have much of a signal. He would try again later. With Percy's help, Moore lifted Linda into his arms. Her severed shoulder had been packed with some sort of clay, and it started sloughing off when they moved her. Blood first started to trickle through, then, as more of the packing stuff fell away, it began to pour. Looking like he might puke, Percy placed Linda's arm across her torso. Her detached hand fell limply against her face, as if to comfort her. There, there, darling. You haven't lost me. I'm right here. The doctors can put me right back on unless that filthy man poisoned your blood with his clumpy mud. Linda was heavier than Moore had anticipated. He could already feel his adrenaline-infused muscles getting tight. Let's move, he called ahead. Percy led the way with his flashlight and rifle. Moore talked through every step they took, telling Linda to listen closely and stay awake. We're coming up on the stairs now. Your husband is making sure they're clear. He's going up the stairs now. Something metal groaned behind them. Moore looked back but couldn't see anything in the dark. Percy swung the light around to try and find it, but had no luck. Forget it. Just keep moving, Moore ordered. He was worried he wouldn't be able to hold Mrs. Charles much longer. They stayed close together all the way up the stairs. At the top still apparently alone, they jogged out of the room. Okay, let's switch here, Moore panted once they were safely away from the stairs. He braced his back against a moist wall and waited for Percy to shoulder his rifle and extend his arms to take her. With a hideous cry, the skin man burst out of the shadows. He caught Percy around the neck with one of his bare arms, and Percy dropped the flashlight. Moore couldn't set Linda down fast enough. He tried reaching for his gun in its holster, Linda's weight made it difficult to find. By the time he grabbed it, Percy was being dragged away, screaming. The skin man had hooked his fingers in Percy's eye sockets. They disappeared around a corner. Skin man, Percy, and Percy's loaded rifle. 
Moore heard the terrified screams growing distant. Soon, all he could hear were their echoes. When he weighed his options, he really had no choice. In his arms, he held an innocent, dying woman. He could not put her fate in jeopardy to go after the man who had gotten them all into this situation in the first place. As Moore stepped through the next doorway, his radio finally came alive. They weren't talking to him, but they were talking about him. Moore leaned against a wall and bent over Linda to press the radio mic on his shoulder. Coming out with one, severely injured. Is medical standing by? He asked. He listened for the skin man's return in between broadcasts. Copy, we've got two ambulances standing by. Good to hear your voice, Todd. It was Hillard on the other end, sounding relieved. Hot and angry, but relieved. Moore got off the wall and hopped a little to adjust Linda for the final stretch. They were almost there. Something bounced off the back of Moore's head and squelched on the ground. He turned. Percy's eyeball had landed directly in the beam of the fallen flashlight. It stared up at him from the floor, even as he ran. Linda's weight suddenly didn't matter. His terror gave him strength he never could have tapped into on his own. Moore could hear the skin man's labored breathing catching up to them, but couldn't tell which direction it was coming from. Now he was in the slaughter room, just a hallway away from safety. A grate exploded off the wall, nearly striking Linda's head. Moore instinctively jumped back and the skin man filled the space he created. He lunged forward, but Moore was too quick. He stepped aside and lashed out with a kick. The skin man came at him again. This time he managed to grab Linda's arm off her chest and started beating Moore in the head with it. Moore could hear Linda's former bones cracking against his skull. Rather than fight, he wrapped his fingers tightly into Linda's clothes and took off in a sprint again. Just one hallway left. He ran down it all the way to the final door, but the door was shut. He couldn't open it without dropping Linda. Hey, hey, open the door, he screamed. He looked back and saw the skin man running down the hall now, Linda's shattered arm flopping in his hand. The door swung open, and Moore practically knocked Hillard over on his way out. Shoot him, he cried. Hillard was almost too late. He noticed the charging man in his tunic of rotting skins with just enough time to get his pistol out of the holster on his hip. He drew down and emptied a 17-round magazine down the hallway. When the echoes of his last shot faded, the Vesta plant was completely silent. Moore and Linda had been absorbed into the crowd of anxious paramedics, deputies, and state troopers in the parking lot. The sound of Hillard's shots had brought a few of the others forward, but he waved them back. The hallway into which he had just dumped an entire magazine was empty. 8. Linda Charles made as full a recovery as one could expect. She's been released from inpatient treatment, including a voluntary stay on the psych ward. She never talked to her lover again. Sergeant Hillard decided to reconnect with an old high school classmate to learn more about the story he had told him way back in the day. It was a story about a man living under and within the walls of the Vesta plant. Deputy Moore resigned and avoided departmental charges for insubordination. He decided to try a new career in insurance. It's what his dad did and had wanted him to do in the first place. Back then, he had been worried it wouldn't be exciting enough, but now it seemed just right. Percy Charles was never seen or heard from again.
you made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.